Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kilohertz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Fili Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, concerns over the use of death penalty in South Sudan and UN member states adopt a global migration pact. In economics news, Kenyan tea farmers face bonus cuts as prices hit a 30-month low. And in sports news, Kasafa Under-20 Championship semi-finals get underway today. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. A political crisis is deepening in Somalia a day after dozens of MPs began impeachment proceedings against President Mohamed Abdullahi Fumajo. There have been rival demonstrations by supporters and opponents of the motion. The BBC's Will Ross has more. The MPs trying to impeach President Mohamed Abdullahi Fumajo have a long list of complaints. These include accusations that his government's been meddling in elections in the regional states of Somalia. They also say the president should not have done a deal with Ethiopia, giving it access to Somali ports. But the crisis has also been triggered by the ongoing feud between Gulf nations. Somalia's politicians are split over their support for the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, two countries competing to expand their influence and economic clout in the region. The politicians want the money these wealthy nations are offering, but the rivalry is causing a political crisis and further instability. The President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Joseph Kabila, who's due to step down after 17 years in power, says his top priority is to ensure that elections run smoothly later this month. Speaking to the BBC, Kabila again refused to rule out running for office in the future. The BBC's Louise de Wast reports. The soft-spoken 47-year-old President Joseph Kabila is remaining vague about his future ambitions, saying he will abide by his country's constitution that doesn't provide a role for former heads of state. He's also hinting at a possible advisory role in the next government. 17 candidates overall are running in these elections scheduled on December 23rd. Many DR Congo observers have expressed concerns about an escalation of violence in the country if elections are not perceived to be free and fair. The U.S. State Department says former Gambian President Yaya Jema and members of his immediate family are now ineligible for entry into the United States. The decision comes almost two years after Jema was forced into exile in Equatorial Guinea after he refused to concede defeat in a presidential election. Jema ruled the West African country for two decades. The State Department says is now being banned from entry under a category that applies to foreign government officials who are believed to have committed significant corruption. 
The joint winners of this year's Nobel Peace Prize, Nadia Murad and Dennis Mugwege, have called for urgent international action to provide justice and protection to women raped during armed conflicts. Mugwege is a Congolese gynecologist who has treated tens of thousands of rape victims. Murad is a Yazidi woman from Iran who was held as a sex slave by ISIS militants. Mugwege says no one should look away while atrocities are being committed. With this Nobel Peace Prize, I call on the world to be a witness. And I urge you to put an end to this suffering that shames our common humanity. Mugwege's fellow prize winner Murad spoke of how she dreamed of finishing school and running a beauty parlor before ISIS fighters captured her village in northern Iran, killed her mother and six of her brothers. In the 21st century, in the age of globalization and human rights, more than 6,500 Yazidi children and women were taken captive. They were sold, bought and sexually and psychologically abused. 3,000 Yazidi women and girls are still missing today. The only prize that would restore the dignity of her people, she said, was justice. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorka. Africa, amuka na unai. Sunday, December the 23rd, is anticipated as the day on which the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, goes to national and presidential elections. Channel Africa will have special broadcasts in English, French and Kiswahili. So join us for this special event from 1000 hours to 1400 hours Central African time on the frequency 15170 on the 19-meter band and between 1700 hours to 1800 hours Central African time on the frequency 17770 on the 16-meter band. Channel Africa bringing you the DRC elections from an African perspective. The Nairobi branch of the London-based human rights organization Amnesty International has requested the Juba government not to execute 135 people that are to be executed for committing various criminal charges. The request comes shortly after the government executed seven people, including a child. James Mangula reports. Recent execution of seven people in South Sudan, including a child, has angered the human rights organization Amnesty International. Now, Amnesty International wants the Juba government to spare lives of 135 people that are to be executed any time from now for committing various crimes. Joan Nyanyuki, Amnesty International's director for Eastern Central Africa, as well as the Great Lakes region, 
explains why her organization is deeply concerned by the execution of the 70 people under the planned execution of 135 others. We are concerned about the continued use of um, the death penalty in South Sudan, where the government has already this year executed seven persons. Beyond the use of the death penalty, we are even further concerned that one of the persons who has been executed was a child at the time he committed the offence. We are further concerned that um, there is an increasing use of the death penalty in South Sudan. This year alone, we have seen seven executions, which is much higher than we have seen since 2011. What concerns us further is that there is an increasing number of people who have been moved to two prisons, the Juba Central Prison and the Wau Central Prison, where executions have previously been carried out. These are 135 people, and that movement to us is an alarming one because it signals that there's a high risk that they could be executed. Amplifying on the execution of children in South Sudan, Nyanyuki had this to say. In terms of execution of children, we know that um, already in the past years, Two children have been executed, and when we say that it is persons who are children at the time they committed the offence, then this year alone we have one child who has been executed, and he was um, about 16, 17 years old at the time he committed the offence, and he was convicted of the crime of murder. First of all, we are concerned that even during the trials, are these children ably represented? Do they get um, a fair trial? And lastly, are they able to really use their right to appeal? In this instance in particular, we are concerned about one 17-year-old boy who is on death row. There's highly probability that um, he would be executed in the, in the coming months. The question that arises is whether the child waiting to be executed appealed against the death sentence. Nyanyuki again. He is awaiting an appeal, which he lodged in December of 2017. There has not been an outcome of that appeal. And he is charged with the crime of um, murder, which he committed at the age of 15. And what concerns us in his particular case is that he did tell the judge that he was 15 at the time of that incident. In spite of that, and in spite of the constitution of South Sudan guaranteeing that a child cannot be executed, the, the trial went on and he was convicted of murder and then subsequently sentenced to death by hanging. Um, so he has lodged the appeal. We are monitoring this closely. We are awaiting outcome of this appeal. But we are reminding the government of South Sudan of its obligations as far as um, its um, international obligations go, its um, obligation under its own constitution that a child cannot be executed we are calling for a total abolition of the death penalty for all crimes because it's the most cruel and inhuman treatment and punishment and um, it is also against really the right to life. It violates the right to life. John Nyanyuki gives a breakdown of the number of people that have been executed in South Sudan over the past seven years. We are aware that um, from 2011, at least 140 people have been sentenced to death out of these, 32 have been executed. Of the 32 who have been executed since 2011, three of them were children at the time of the crime. This year alone, seven people have been executed, one of whom was a child. And um, 
we are aware that 135 prisoners are on death row and they have been recently transferred to the two central prisons where executions are carried out. South Sudan also has an obligation to establish a moratorium on the use of the death penalty and to go further and abolish totally in its laws the use of the death penalty. That was Joanne Nyanyuki, Amnesty International's director for East and Central Africa as well as the Great Lakes region. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. A South African human rights defender, Nonlem Butuma, is featured highly amongst activists and cases handled by Amnesty International this year. Butuma led the Olobeni community in South Africa's Eastern Cape province that has been fighting against titanium mining in the area until they won a COD battle last month. Amnesty presented its report on the year in human rights focused on the role women and growing attacks on multilateralism. Ntakwanangadane reports. Were sleeping under the forest, and some of the women were hiding because there was shooting in our community. This is 41 year old Nonlembutuma from Kolobeni in the Eastern Cape. She is a member of the Amadiba Crisis Committee that fought a 15 year battle to give the people of Kolobeni the right to decide if an Australian company should be given titanium mining rights. Last month, they won a court battle in which the North Houting High Court ruled that the people must give their consent. And this struggle and victory have made Nonle one of the leading human rights defenders of 2018. And they're giving birth. They were get, getting early birth because of the trauma. But where was the government? They were silent. And besides that, and some of the people were being hacked and being shot. And as I'm speaking... Uh, there's people that are completely paralyzed. Nonsha tells harrowing tales of a divided community. Supporters of the mining project argue that it will bring economic benefits to one of the poorest areas of the country. But Amadiba worry about displacement from their homes and grazing lands and environmental degradation. They want agriculture and ecotourism. She now fears for her life after the chairperson of the committee was killed, but Nonlembutuma maintains women are best placed to defend human rights. Enough is enough, and we need to be protected. We're not, we are sick and tired of being used as being dumping places. When uh, these children are sick, they dump to us. When these men are sick from the mining, they are dumped to us. Now, we need to speak out to say, government, please uh, put our lives first than the profit. We know that profit is important, but it's not impo- important than the, 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 the lives of the people. Nonsha's case is one of many that have highlighted the role of women as human rights defenders. Their causes include the pay gap, reproductive rights, freedom of expression, and defense of natural resources. But they bear the brand of gender-based violence as many countries fail to investigate and prosecute these crimes. Dipros Muchena is the regional director of Amnesty International Southern Africa. Impunity thrives on a weak criminal justice system. In South Africa, we reported in February uh, this year, when we launched 27 uh, year in review, that over 39,000 cases of rape were reported to the police between April 2016 and March 2017. In September, last, uh, this last year, September, the Medical Research Council of South Africa stated that only 8.6% of rape cases opened by the police in 2012 
had resulted in convictions. And Shanila Mohammed is the executive director of Amnesty International South Africa. We were very, very um, uh, glad to see that President Ramaphosa uh, stepped up at some point around uh, the 16 days of activism and, uh, you know, at the meeting that was held where women spoke about the issues that they were facing, he made a number of commitments and he made commitments to deal with it. If you look at South Africa, it's got amongst the highest rates of domestic violence where women are killed by their partners. While some women are celebrated, others like Myanmar's Aung Suu Kyi were disappointing. Amnesty International has stripped her of the prestigious Ambassador of Conscience Award. But Nonle Mutuma and other women from neighboring countries continue to shine the light. I'm Takwanangatani in Johannesburg. South African government officials have been refusing to appear before the South African Human Rights Commission. The commission says they have had to resort to issuing subpoenas to get officials to account. Commission Chairperson Bongani Majola said this at the launch of the annual Trends Analysis Report, which gives a summary of the work the organization has done during the 2016-2017 financial year. Angela Bulwana has more. Government officials do not cooperate um, and you send reminders after reminders and you find that you, you don't get any response or you get a negative response and then as a result of that you, you, you then are forced to use the coercive measures. South African Human Rights Commission Chairperson Bongani Majola explaining how hard it is to get government officials to participate in their inquiries. Majola says they end up having to subpoena their officials in order to continue with their work. The organization gave a summary of their work in the last financial year and highlighted five top complaints. Spokesperson Alexandra Fitzgerald says complaints about racism came out tops. In relation to these race-based complaints, our provincial officers have instituted proceedings in equality courts across the country to resolve race-based equality complaints. The majority of the cases that we litigated in the equality um, courts involved the use of the K-word and other derogatory comments including baboon, arp or monkey. Um, One of the more high-profile matters during the 16-17 financial year um, was where the commission represented Constable Clement Mkondo against um, Ms. Vicky Momberg. The commission has also flagged the hardships faced by poor South Africans at the hands of banks and other financial institutions. Fitzgerald warned that the commission will be focusing on these cases going forward. So um, we've increasingly are looking at unscrupulous business practices that exploit poor South Africans and, and we note that they've historically gone unchallenged as a general proposition. So cases like this have a, have a, have a wide capacity to have a substantial impact on the lives of, of, of large communities through, through those precedents. So I think you'll most likely see the Commission looking into those cases and continuing our work in that area. The report is released every year and summarizes the work that the Commission has done over that year. It includes details on the nature of complaints, litigation and hearings, among other things. Sunday, December the 23rd, is anticipated as the day on which the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, goes to national and presidential elections. Channel Africa will have special broadcasts in English, French and Kiswahili. 
So join us for this special event from 1000 hours to 1400 hours Central African time on the frequency 15170 on the 19 meter band and between 1700 hours to 1800 hours Central African time on the frequency 17770 on the 16 meter band. Channel Africa bringing you the DRC elections from an African perspective. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. The first ever international deal on the migration crisis was signed on Monday by a majority of UN states despite vociferous objections led by the United States. The historic non-binding global pact seeking to better manage migration was approved by delegates from 164 nations following 18 months of debate and negotiation. The UN's Global Compact on Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration signed in Moroccan City of Marrakesh is aimed at coordinating action on migration around the world. More from Komotsomo Pulane, who spoke to Matthew Cochrane from the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. The states have adopted the Global Compact, which is really encouraging. Important recognition that, that the, the issue of migration is not something that individual states can, can solve themselves. They need to come together and, and work together to, to truly create a system that's safer and, and, and orderly. Um, so we see it as a, as a positive step. However, our message as well to governments quite clearly is the work really has to start now. Um, in, in a lot of ways, this is the easy part because when you look on the ground, and that's where we are as a Red Cross and Red Crescent, uh, the needs of migrants, experiences of, of migrants, particularly vulnerable migrants, are, are getting worse. Uh, the, the policies that many states are adopting um, are in stark contrast to the ambitions of the Global Compact that was adopted here. We're seeing more people in need, more people dying, more children exposed to intolerable violence and, and sexual abuse. Talk to us now briefly about you know, the kind of contribution the IFRC is making to this meeting. Are there any specific issues relating to migration that you are really uh, wanting to push forward at this meeting? Sure. I mean, our perspective is always a humanitarian perspective. Our perspective is always about... Um, what's actually happening on the ground. That situation is, is quite simply unacceptable. Our president has described the current global approach to migration as, as broken, as, as simply and painfully broken. Um, we're seeing people dying in, in unacceptable numbers. Any death, any preventable death is un, unacceptable. We're seeing thousands of people dying trying to cross the Mediterranean, potentially thousands of people dying trying to cross the Saharan Desert. We're seeing increases of, of xenophobia fueled by um, populist governments that are all too willing to capitalise on, on people's fears and to betray migrants uh, as others. So our concerns are, are about humanitarian, they're about changing the narrative and they're about changing this idea that, that people seem to have had that somehow that the suffering of, of anyone, be they migrant or anyone, is, is acceptable. You know, today's the 70th anniversary of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
our message quite simply is that migrants are people and, and as people they have the same human rights as everyone and those rights include not dying and, and, and they include having access to, to basic services and protection. Matthew, talk to us about the, you know, what the situation is at the Bosnian and Croatian border. We've, we've appealed today for about 3.3 million Swiss francs, which is about 3 million US dollars. There's a, a crisis that's been unfolding very slowly in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the north near the border with Croatia. It's another example of what I've been talking about, of what we're talking about, people are talking about here, which is the, the, the inadequate capacity of the global approach to migration to, to respond to the needs of people who, who, who are in need of help. Um, these people have been trapped by the closure of uh, the Croatian border. Many of them are trying to cross the border, and we understand from them that they face uh, violence from, from Croatian, uh, Croatian border guards and are sent back injured and beaten. Um, people are, are holed up in, in an abandoned uh, school or university or in tents or in other entirely inadequate um, shelter situations. And the weather is, is, is getting colder and, and it will plummet. It can plummet well below zero. Um, these people have very little despite the best efforts of, of local aid groups. So our appeal is, is, to, is to governments, to partners, to, to give us the resources that we need so we can provide these people um, with, with the basics, the life-saving basics, so they can survive the winter. But even more than that, I think our message to governments is always fix this. This is not acceptable. It's not acceptable that people are trapped in intolerable conditions. It's purely man-made disaster. It's completely avoidable if government involved, uh, the Croatian government, the Bosnia Herzegovina government, take simple steps to, to ensure that people have the services they need. That's Matthew Corcoran, spokesperson at the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, on the line from Morocco, speaking to Komutomo Pulani. It is you, the people, who are our true heroes. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy, pride in the ordinary, humble people of this country. You have shown such a calm, patient determination to reclaim this country as your own from the rooftops, free at last. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating a hundred years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. At a time when Zimbabwe is battling with serious socio-economic challenges, the population is expected to reach 19.3 million by 2032. This is likely going to put pressure on the service delivery and scarce resources. The 2017 Demographic Dividend Report has revealed. The survey report, which was launched in Harare on Monday, also warned that failure to create quality jobs for the youth is a time bomb. Simon Machema reports from Harare. 
Zimbabwe is a young nation with roughly 13 million people but struggling to provide for its citizens. Despite the negative outlook, the fertility rate in the country has been one of the highest in the Sadak region such that by 2032 it is estimated the population would have grown to 19.3 million. Considering that unemployment rate is so high in Zimbabwe, the number of youths dependent on their parents continues to increase. Meanwhile, the 2017 demographic dividend survey report launched in Harare on Monday, Zimbabwe is failing to enjoy its dividends owing to high fertility rate. A number of women in Zimbabwe do not have access to family planning, hence the population growth against an ailing economy. The principal director in the finance ministry, Taguma Mahonde, said, "From the 2015 uh, Zimbabwe demographic health survey." Um, we see that we have got an unmet need for family planning which is high at national level it's about 10%. This is high among rural women 11% compared to urban women which is 9%. We have got it's also higher for ladies that uh, received primary education only 14% compared to their counterparts who received secondary education. It's also higher among poorer women with those from poorest households having an unmet need of 14% compared to 7% to women in the wealthiest households. Um continuing with our barriers that we need to overcome uh there's the need to keep early child uh, bearing an estimated 11% of girls between 15 and 19 years old give birth annually. over the period of study uh then there is also the issue of child marriage 5% of women aged uh, 25 to 45 were first married by 15 years of age whilst almost 3 out of every 10 in the same age group were first married by 18 years of age the survey was conducted between 2015 to 2017 cases of funds from the UNFPA Under normal circumstances, demographics dividends are defined by the United Nations Population Fund means economic growth that can result from shift in a population's age structure giving rise to the working age population than non-working age. For Zimbabwe the opposite is true. UN boss Bishop Parajuli said The other challenges which we have uh in the context of demographic issues are early marriages, uh huge increase in training uh teenage pregnancies, uh still high level of maternal mortalities, um uh, and and uh increase in uh school dropouts uh for various reasons including economic uh challenges. and overall lack of employment opportunities among youth uh so therefore uh really working on that uh, going forward uh is is uh, is is the right thing to do uh probably uh and and the last point i want to stress is is uh, is uh, moving forward uh obviously investing more on education and skills health uh employment including uh you know access to credit for example uh more private sector uh, involvement 
Unemployment in Zimbabwe is more than 80% and youths who constitute 70% of the population are the worst affected. Finance Minister Dr. Mtuling Nguve said the country might soon face unrest if government fails to come up with clear policies of job creation. Zimbabwe set its own targets that by 2030 the country should have migrated from the low income to middle income. In Arari, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Our headlines up next with Than Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, a political crisis is deepening in Somalia a day after dozens of MPs began impeachment proceedings against President Mohamed Abdullahi Majo. Former Gambian President Yaya Jime and members of his immediate family have been banned from entering the United States and Egyptian authorities introduced restrictions on the sale of yellow reflector vests fearing opponents might attempt to copy French protesters during next month's anniversary of the 2011 popular uprising that toppled Hosni Mubarak. Those are the stories making headlines. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Nobel Peace Laureate, Iraqi human rights activist Nadia Murad and Congolese Dr. Dennis Mukwege yesterday received a prize for their work to speak up about and prevent sexual violence in their respective communities. Experts say the attention the prize has drawn to gender-based violence in war zones must be followed by action against the abuses. For more on, the, on this, we are now joined on the line by the Norwegian Refugee Council's media coordinator in Iraq, Tom Pere Costa. Good morning, Tom, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, and thank you for airing me. Now, remind us on the work Nadia Murad and Dennis Mukwege have done enough for them to receive the Nobel Peace Prize and what it then means for their countries. Nadia Murad and, and Dennis Mukwege um, are truly heroic and inspiring advocates. Uh, they have clearly given a voice to, to victims of sexual violence worldwide um, and victims are not suffering in, in silence anymore. Um, Mrs. Murad was, was, was enslaved when, when her city was attacked in, in 2014 by Islamic State group and sold as a sex slave to Islamic State fighters. Um, she managed to survive and escape, and she's now one of the strongest UN goodwill ambassadors 
uh, and advocates uh, against sexual violence. Uh, Dr. Mukwege is not only helping victims of sexual violence and abuse, but is also tirelessly advocating for change uh, and prevent more people from undergoing the same horrors. So what it means for them and, and the victims worldwide is, uh, is that the, the international community is sending a strong and clear message uh, that women and men must be protected more against sexual violence and that um, perpetrators of such crimes will be held accountable uh, as war crime. It, it will also boost the work of aid organizations in the fight against sexual violence worldwide, which is very important for us, and, and will encourage states to draw red lines against these barbaric weapons of war through concrete sanctions uh, and stronger accountability mechanisms. Now, what's the state of gender-based violence in Iraq, especially during times of war? Well, women, as usual, unfortunately, paid the highest price during the war against Islamic State group. Um, as an example, in Iraq, um, Mr. Murad's community, the Yazidis community, nearly 7,000 women were enslaved and raped by Islamic State fighters. And still, three years on, um, as of today, 3,000 women are still missing, uh, while mass graves are being discovered regularly, which make us think about the worst. So the Yazidi who have lived through uh, these uh, atrocities, barbaric atrocities, are now, three years on, suffering from the lack of international support. So this is also why this Nobel Peace Prize is important, because it also um, it is a very timely reminder that hundreds of thousands of, of victims of Islamic State group in Iraq are still languishing, homeless, and unable to, to return uh, with no justice. Now, what's the government of Iraq doing to ensure that those who have committed these war crimes are held accountable? Well, that, that's uh, an important point. Uh, Iraqi authorities uh, must bring back justice at the table in Iraq. Um, they must reinforce uh, accountability mechanism. It is part of uh, the necessary efforts to ensure that Iraq is on the path of reconciliation. And more importantly, or as importantly, um, victims must have, aspect, uh, must have access to holistic care and support. They need to have medical support, psychological support, and legal support. Reparation mechanisms are fundamental to help them rebuild their lives and, and regain control of their destiny. Now, experts speak of uh, stronger efforts needed to prevent sexual violence and war. What can be done, if anything, to prevent this this from happening? Well, as I said, um, uh, stronger mechanism and and to to held accountable perpetrators of such crimes are key. But uh, there is also a, a need for more support from the international community. There needs to be a global support uh, to fight against um, sexual violence. And it, it also comes through uh, more funding in the reconstruction and the reconciliation of, of Iraq. Uh, three years um, 
uh, after the end of the war. This is this is not time to to forget Iraq, uh, and it also applies to to every other context where sexual violence is used as a weapon of war worldwide. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's Tom Pere Costa, Norwegian Refugee Council's media coordinator in Iraq, joining us on the line. For a period, it was one of the world's biggest security concerns. It even inspired a Hollywood movie. But in recent years, Somali piracy has pretty much dropped off the news agenda. That's due to no small part to international efforts to combat it. Warships, planes, helicopters, many from the European Union have effectively suppressed the small skiffs that operated off one of the longest coastlines in Africa. There have only been two recorded incidents in 2018, both failed as the European anti-piracy operation codenamed Atalanta joined a crew of a Spanish warship Castilla as they sail from the Gulf of Aden to Mogadishu to see what remains of the piracy problem. It looked like an, an, an attack. The area is the Somali basin. It's uh, more or less a 300 nautical mile east of Mogadishu. Captain Ricardo Leone. Chief of Staff of the European Union Naval Force, briefing us about the latest pirate attack on the Indian Ocean in October. One skiff shots fired at the motor vessel. What is the current situation? They had on board a security team that returned fire. And the master confirmed that the persons on board are, are all safe and the vessel is safe and the skiff left. I am on board a Spanish warship on the Indian Ocean off the coast of Somalia. This is part of the European Union efforts to keep these waters safe. It's an important sea route for global trade. Six to ten years ago, pirates operated here with impunity. But the presence of warships like this ones have helped to deter piracy and to suppress it. Some former pirates still live on the Somali coast. We met one of them in Hordia, in the northern region of Puntland. Like many others, he was initially a fisherman. I had a boat and a net on it. Then a trawler cut our fishing nets and pulled them away. Our fishing equipment was destroyed. I was left with an empty boat. That's what angered us. He lost many friends to piracy, but says he's now reformed. We're now approaching the village of Isle. A helicopter is hovering in the sky. Nothing is left to chance here. The security is very tight. For many years, Isle was the epicenter of Somali piracy activity. It's a tiny strip of sandy beach set right in front of a dramatic cliff. The local police commissioner, Mohamed Yusuf, says they're only just growing their coast guard and they've still got a long way to go. We don't have enough boats to take to sea. We have only two small boats, but they don't move fast. But the presence of warships has made a difference. Rear Admiral Alfonso Perez de Nanclares is in charge of the EU naval operation here. When the mission started, we got uh, about 40 different ships hijacked and more than 700 people hijacked its work. It's now down to two unsuccessful attempts this year. 
Admiral Nanclares ordered the destruction at sea of the boat used in the second attack. Piracy has been contained, uh, but uh, I really think that uh, the intention of uh, going back to this business is still there. And so the warship patrols continuously. Breakfast has been cut short and there's increasing activity in the bridge. This is where the officers observe what is going on out in the sea. And we're told that there is a fishing dhow that has been spotted. And the officers are now preparing what they call a friendly approach. The boats have now slowed down on the water and I can see the officers are getting onto the fishing dhow. The boat is from Somalia and the crew is from Yemen. I can see they are receiving t-shirts now. Yes, yes, yes. They, that, that, those are uh, winning concert uh, gifts. It's like uh, they are friendly, so they are letting us to get on board the ship. Once the officers are sure the boat is safe, we are allowed to board it. Osman Ali has fished here for six years. Sometimes we meet bad people who steal our tools and fish, but the presence of the warship has made things better. I ask if he's seen any pirates. No, but there are fishing trawlers here. Those foreign-owned trawlers are a real cause for concern. They were blamed for forcing fishermen into piracy in the first place. The EU mission has succeeded in suppressing Somalia's piracy problem, but the conditions that fueled the attacks have not gone away. That report by the BBC's Ansoy in Somalia. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Luhuku. Good morning. A global auditing firm, KPMG South Africa, has appealed to members of the public to begin to view it as a changed business. This follows months of efforts to regain public trust after being embroiled in a major corruption scandal. In an open letter, KPMG South Africa's executive chairperson, Wiseman Nguhu, says that the local unit of the auditing giant is very different from what it was 18 months ago, after a period of insignificant, or rather, significant introspection. KPMG has repeatedly apologized for its role in some of South Africa's largest corruption scandals. They have damaged the reputation of one of the world's biggest audit firms at a time when it is also facing a criticism from practices elsewhere. Analysts at Pan-African Banking Conglomerate EcoBank say East African economies are set to enjoy sustained economic growth with a rise in the gross domestic product and export revenues. EcoBank says that the region looks set for continued and sustained economic growth, assisted by commodity prices and the prospect of significant oil production. Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda are enjoying a period of significant economic growth with their GDP's forecast to grow between 52 and 8.5% this year. 
President Emmanuel Macron of France has announced the rise in the minimum wage and the tax changes in response to weeks of violent anti-government protests. In other concessions outlined in a televised address, he says employers will be asked to pay end-of-year bonuses to staff. Macron has denied making a U-turn. We will respond to this economic and social urgency with strong measures, through cutting taxes more rapidly and keeping our spending under control, but not with U-turns. We want a France where people can live with dignity through their work, and on this point we've progressed too slowly. I want to intervene quickly and firmly on this issue. I ask the government and parliament to do whatever is necessary so people can live better on their salaries from the beginning of next year. Liberians must brace themselves to pay one US dollar fifty six cents per minute for on net calls should the new tariffs set by the Liberia Telecommunications Authority sail through. The new tariff would be a shock to consumers who for the past four years have been paying one dollar for unlimited on net calls for three days on both Lone Star MTN and Orange GSM networks. This means consumers would have to pay almost nine dollars thirty six cents for an hour of on-net call compared to $1 for 72 hours on on on-net call. The U.S. dollar is trading at 10.43 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.81 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.90 Brazilian roll, at 66.46 Russian ruble, and at 71.79 Indian rupee, 6.90 Chinese yuan, and uh, $14.25 to the South African rand. 78 cents, rather, pence to the British pound, and 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,245, platinum $783 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $60.17 a barrel. From an African perspective, you're listening to Channel Africa. My name is Tabi Solohoku. Our sports updates up next with Figle Lingwati. First in our sports update this hour, it's football news. South Africa could step in as host of the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations. This, according to the president of the Confederation of African Football, Kef Ahmad Ahmad, in an interview. Kef has been studying alternative solutions for the staging of the 15th of June to the 13th of July event after Cameroon were withdrawn as hosts due to delays with preparations and security concerns. Ahmad says a final decision on who will host next summer's football showpiece will be announced on the 9th of January. He added that for now, two or three candidates had shown an interest in taking over from Cameroon, the Madagascan naming South Africa as having filed a letter of intent. The decision to ditch Cameroon for 2019 has created a confusion, the merry-go-round. Ahmed said in an interview last week, the West African country will now host the 2021 edition, originally given to Ivory Coast, who will now host the tournament in 2023. 
the organizers of the 2018 Kosafa Under-20 Championship in Zambia have been forced to bring forward the final of this year's tournament due to a clash of fixtures. The final will now be played on Thursday instead of Friday due to Ghana FC's refusal to change their CAF Champions League fixture against Simba FC of Tanzania. The Ghana Stadium is one of the two venues currently used for the Kosafa tournament. So far in the tournament, South Africa have scored nine goals and conceded only one in two matches, finishing top of Group B. Amachita coach Tabo Sinong says their aim is to improve in every match they play at the tournament. For us, it's, it's, it's trying to reduce the mistakes, trying to perfect our game because we know that every game becomes tougher. Now we are in the next stage, which is knockout stage. Knockout stage is a do or die. It's tougher than the group stages. Angola have previously reached the four finals of the Kosafa Cup tournament, losing three in a row. Their last final appearance was seven years ago. With five Kosafa titles under their belts, Amajita will go into the match as slight favourites. But Angola coach Pedro Valdemar Consalves says they've got all what it takes to match South Africa. I think uh, South Africa perhaps is the most team playing like us. Perhaps it's the first time we, we, we play with uh, uh, a similar style. But for sure they, they will try to manage the, the match, we also. And in the end, we will see who is better. New South African Open champion Louis Ostezen has credited new coach Justin Parsons and a different conditioning that is less stressful on his back for the win that earned him his maiden's SA Open title over the weekend. It was a year with a lot of things in it. Um, felt like I played good, but not score good. And, and um, you know, we, we did a few different things. I'm back with my, my trainer, um, fitness-wise, and... and um, we we worked on a few things to get my body in better positions and and to have it easier on my on my back for you know to be able to play more golf that's the big thing and um so we've done different things i've i've got a new coach um justin parsons and and uh, we've been a little bit looking more on stats on on where my weaknesses is and so so the last 6 7 months has really been Focusing on on where I can, you know, where I can really do better. Um, not just go on the range and eat balls and don't really know what you're working towards. Uo Seizen says he has worked a lot on his short game while also trying to improve on his driving. And Uo Seizen will now have his sights firmly set on recording back-to-back wins in this weekend's Alfred Dunhill Championship at Leopard Creek. There is a lot of things we changed, you know, practice-wise. Um, shorter iron, especially wedges, I've worked on hard. Putting, I've been worked on hard. And just drive, even driving it better. I've always been a good driver, but, but um, you know, try and get it even better than what it is because then I can hit more drives. Um, so we have been working on a lot of things, and um, it's great to see the results in a shortish period of time. Um, I just need to keep on going and, and um, you know, work even harder to get them even better. 
Finally, Chantle Claw and Cameroon van der Berg will lead the South African contingent at the FINA World Championship 25 meter in Hangzhou, China. The championships are scheduled to get underway from today, the 11th of December, up until the 16th. Team South Africa will consist of nine swimmers, six men and three women. Van der Berg and Leclerc will be making their fifth appearances in the FINA World Championship. South Africa finished fourth on the medals table, winning four gold and silver in Windsor. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Concerns over the use of death penalty in South Sudan and UN member states adopt a global migration pact. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Khomuto Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Shine Africa. I'm taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa. It's Kanda Bongoman with a song titled My Love, Elizabeth. I Why?
Johnny Walker, walking out on my head, the all my body. I love you, my baby. 